0: The History of
1: Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when, of why we wear. We are fashion historians
0: and your hosts,
1: April Callahan
0: and Cassidy Zachary. Pop quiz, April. If you had to pick just one favorite pair of shoes from throughout your entire life, what would they be and why? Uh, do I have to pick just one pair?
1: Can I pick mm. multiple pairs? One pair. Okay. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so, I have to say probably my favorite pair of shoes that I own are these really really beautiful Prada shoes from like 2003. Um, they're pale pink satin high heels with two straps that go across um, the foot. Um, they don't have a they don't have a sling back or anything like that on them. So they're kind of like almost high heeled sandals. And over the top, they have the, these giant, probably inch wide gold rhinestones across the straps. Ooh. I mean, they're just. I have a little bit of gold leather and like juxtaposed with the pink satin. They're just extremely feminine and delicate. And even though I live in New York and very rarely wear those types of shoes walking around the city anymore, they're still safely tucked away in my closet. And I will probably never get rid
0: of them. They're just beautiful, like little works of art. Right. It's really interesting how we hold on to those those types of pieces of accessories or garments that we don't really wear all that often or at all, but they're still so special to us that we keep them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't say the same that I have my favorite pair of shoes anymore because I wore them to death, but they were these green jellies. Does everyone remember jellies? Oh, <laughs> I hell owned yeah. I only used when I was about 12 or 13. I was obsessed with them. I adored them so much. Uh, to, to this day, anytime I see jellies and they are they do come in and out of fashion, I'm like immediately transported back in time to my <laughs> preteen self. <laughs> I mean, so much significance can be placed in the dress that we put on our bodies, as we, of course, always discuss. And shoes are especially interesting because they serve this undeniably practical purpose for the lowest part of us. And yet we put so much stock into these items. They're also often the most expensive item of clothing on someone. I mean, I know people who collect them as investments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and shoes can be status symbols, of course. And at the same time, also markers of one's individuality, you know, they, they, get, they speak about the person's style, but they also can speak to one's culture, one's religion, and especially what we're going to talk about here today on our episode, which is one's gender. Because as we all know, if fashion history has shown us anything, it's about how much society has to have sartorial distinctions between what men and what women
0: wear. They sure do. And one of the most gendered items of dress has to be the high heel, a subject that just so happens to be the specialty of our guest today, a woman who just might have one of the coolest jobs on the planet. As senior curator of the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto, Canada, Elizabeth Simelhack has made a career of researching, writing about, and exhibiting the historical and cultural significance of footwear. Elizabeth, we are so pleased to have you on the show today. Welcome. Elizabeth, welcome to the show today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, I cannot even tell you what a pleasure this is. I mean, I have really come across your research and read your work so many times. This is a true honor to have you here with us today. And before we dive into the fascinating history of High Heels, I am hoping you can tell us about the Shoe Museum, its origin, and its incredible collection.
2: Absolutely. So the museum uh, started a long time ago um, when Mrs. Bata married Mr. Bata uh, and uh, he was already the head of a very large shoe organization. And in 1946, uh, as a young bride, she really wanted to travel with him. She wanted to be a part of the business. And the business was already at that point global. And so she began to travel, go around the world, and she made a very astute observation, which was Although people's feet are basically the same, no matter where you go around the world, what they have traditionally put on them is incredibly different. And so there must be cultural, social, uh, environmental meanings that are embedded in, in footwear. And so she began to collect and... Shortly, after the collection had grown, um, and she really sort of was i think bitten by the collecting bug and then started to expand the collection to broaden its depth in, in terms of time. The oldest piece that we have is four thousand five hundred years old, uh, as well as you know uh, collect some contemporary material and then eventually. She had this building that we're in now, uh, specially designed and built to house the collection and it opened its doors in 1995. We now have about 14,000 pairs of shoes and other uh, artifacts related to footwear. And we have three temporary gallery spaces, one permanent gallery space, and we are devoted to teasing out history uh, starting at a pair of shoes
0: which is so incredibly cool. And I I really do love the idea that behind this incredible collection is the vision and passion of this one woman. I had no idea before this episode uh, about her legacy, so it's really incredible. And I'm sure that you and I know, and many of the listeners of Dress know the answer to this next question, uh, but why is a museum dedicated entirely to footwear important? What do shoes have to teach us beyond their aesthetic value?
2: You know, I think that certainly, and I think a lot of our artifacts um, show this quite clearly, footwear is a craft. Beautiful, beautiful objects um, can be made by shoemakers. And, and you know, many of us uh, go into stores and we look for shoes and we're drawn to their aesthetic value, but there's so much more uh, embedded in them. You know, I think that a man... Uh, in general, uh, broadly speaking, um, some men might find red high heels beautiful, but would be hard pressed to put them on themselves and wear them. And so an aesthetic appreciation does not match necessarily with how those objects might be in fact used. And so because something even as seemingly small as a pair of shoes can express such larger cultural issues such as gender, um, I think that this is really what we do here at the museum. Uh, We do collect beautiful objects, but we want people to see beyond the beauty to engage with issues related to who made it, why was it made, who wore it, and what does it tell us about the time period in which those um, shoes were worn?
0: Right, and so there's millions and millions of shoes, billions at this point in history, probably, (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And so I'm really curious to know what goes into your selection of pieces to include in the collection? So, for instance, when you first saw Alexander McQueen's amazing armadillo boots, did you instantly know that those are important for the collection, or does it take a little bit more hindsight and distance between yourself and a piece? A more contemporary piece, for instance?
2: you know it's a it's an interesting question, and in fact, Mrs. Bada passed away a year ago in February, and she had been such a guiding force. And, and in many ways, the collection itself is an artifact of one woman's collecting. But her dream for the museum was that we continue to grow. And so now we're, you know, pardon the pun, <laughs> stepping out into a new uh, for the museum. And so we are, I am thinking a lot about our collecting practices. And so many museums focus on collecting unique objects, rare objects. I think that we also have a responsibility for collecting objects that have spoken to culture. You know, I, I often will bring up this example. You know, if you look at a, a Birkenstock and you think that you can guess the dietary practices of the wearer, whether or not they believe in recycling, and if they voted <laughs> um, Democrat, uh, I think that that means a lot of information is in that pair of shoes and we should probably have some in the collection. And so, I am very interested in having both the pedestrian shoe in the collection as well as the exceptional shoe. So the armadillo boots were fascinating and they definitely were something that I think deserved a place or deserves a place in the museum because of one, his vision, because of how exceptional they are. I am also, you know, my work is dedicated to looking at elevating footwear and these are a very interesting um, example that links back to footwear in the 70s. And so there are many, many reasons why I was actually instantly uh, fascinated by them. And so sometimes, obviously, this is what I do (laughs) 24-7, look at footwear and, and try to figure out what we need in the collection. But the answers to what I'm actually seeking might not be as obvious as just an exceptional shoe.
0: Right. And that leads me to my next question, which is Can you toss about a few of the more rare and interesting shoes in the collection, or maybe what are a few of your favorite pairs perhaps? If that's even possible to pick a favorite pair, it probably isn't with over 14,000 pieces.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it is hard to pick a favorite pair because, you know, something I believe deeply is that there are so many stories embedded in every single pair of shoes that we have. If you think about the materials, where they came from, who traded them, who who prepared them, who made the shoe. Like I said earlier, why they made it, who they sold it to, why anybody cared to wear that design. Could everybody have a chance to wear them or were they just for the wealthy or just for one gender or whatever? And so I love the stories that I can pull out of shoes. But having said that, of course, I do have a few favorites. We have a pair of Uh, skates, uh, roller skates from around 1860. They were made for a woman to wear, and they're actually inline roller skates from
0: 1860.
2: Wow. And so I'm really interested in innovation and how it pushes history I'm very uh, I've been doing a lot of work on sneakers and athleticism in relationship to you know constructions of gender and economics and so uh, I, I find some of the early sneakers that we have in the collection to be really really fascinating. We have a pair of moccasins that date, their Mohawk moccasins, they date to around 1770. And when I was a little kid, I became really interested in the American Revolution. I'm American. And, and when I got here and saw that those moccasins were from New York State, probably, and that they were from that exact time period that I'd been so interested in as a kid. And then I turned the moccasins over, and you can see the footprint of the wearer. And there's something, so, um, vi- there's something visceral, I think, about working with objects that relate to the body. And so for me, my favorites sort of go across the range of both these exceptional pieces, as well as ones that sort of really help me understand humanity and history.
0: Yeah. And I thought it was really cool to discover actually that not everything is shoes in your collection. You actually have a collection of socks and you did an exhibit yeah. at the at the museum a couple years ago called Socks Between You and Your Shoes. And I mean, at <laughs> first thought, people might think of socks as this very incredibly utilitarian standard kind of boring wardrobe item, but no way. I mean, you proved how fascinating they are. There's an 800-year-old sock from North America. It's so cool.
2: Correct. <laughs> Yeah, I I know. I mean, I wanted, because you are absolutely correct. We have foot, shoes and footwear related items, which of course includes socks. We have Napoleon socks and, and we, you know, we have that, um, that sock that you mentioned made of human hair and, you know, footwear is one thing, socks are another. And yet they, they work in tandem and uh, you see such amazingly beautiful textile work being produced with socks. And then you see, So you can see beautiful cashmere socks from Persia or very, very fine, newly invented nylon sheer pantyhose. I mean, again, technology is kind of wrapped up in some of these discussions. But, uh, yep, (laughs) stockings, socks are as important as (laughs) shoes.
0: Yeah, the museum has presented so many wonderful exhibition that speak to this really vast breadth of the Bata Shoe Collection. These range from Inuit boots, a woman's art, which was from 95-96 to Every Step a Lotus Shoes and the Lives of Chinese Women from late Imperial China and that was in 2000. And then the museum's current exhibition Want, Desire, Design and Depression Era Footwear is actually currently on view until March 30th of next year. Can you tell us about this current exhibition?
2: Yes, yeah, so I wanted to do an exhibition um, that looked at uh, 1930s footwear for a number of reasons. One, the 1930s seems highly relevant today. I think that there are many things from economic stress to political changes that maybe we need to think about what has happened in the past. Uh, as we move forward. And in addition, I wanted to look at how fashion was used in the 1930s for both political as well as economic reasons. So I decided to do an exhibition. I decided to play with the word want. Uh, Want can mean in desperate need of, you know, somebody starving to death is in want of food. But of course, more, more commonly, the term want is used to express desire. And so I became very interested in how desire for fashion was used to, with the hopes that if women could consume more, the economy could be buoyed. In addition, uh, as you know, once the Great Depression hit, $14 billion was lost in a matter of days. 24% of the American workforce was out of work, 30% of the Canadian workforce was out of work. And because women were then, as now, paid less than men, Many more women were brought into the workplace, and one of the challenges that women had, but at the same time was seen as a bo- potential boon for the economy, is that women are not ex- are not really allowed to wear the same thing to work every day. We don't have the same kind of um, suit of or uh, uniform suit of authority. And so as women went to work, they had many sartorial obligations that required them to in some way, Uh, purchase new things. And so I looked at stockings, for example, you know, hemlines had gone up in the 1920s, they remained somewhat, legs were bared, at least in the 1930s. And so you had to wear a pair of stockings, but stockings represented 10 to 20% of a woman's income.
0: Wow.
2: We live in a time where we have fast fashion and it's I think it's interesting to remind ourselves how costly clothing has been in the past. I also talk about the upkeep of footwear, attempts to make it shine, repair it, making do, trying to make yourself presentable. And then I also was very interested in exploring why the 1930s was such a period of explosive um, create or, uh, uh, creativity exploding in shoe design and part of it is that because sometimes women couldn't afford a completely different outfit they were they would then accessorize hat design also gets very uh, sort of outrageous in the 1930s and so by Wearing an interesting hat, wearing an exceptionally interesting pair of shoes, you can signal to the world that you are part of the fashionable world, even if you can't change out everything else that you're wearing. And so increasing pressure was put on shoe design to convey ideas of being up to date, of being fashionable. And so it's in this period that Ferragamo introduces the wedge It's uh, when the platform is brought back into fashion since the 16th century. (laughs) And sandals actually come into fashion for the first time almost since antiquity. There was a little tiny moment in the early 19th century when sandals tried to make a comeback. But these are radical changes in shoe architecture that happened in the 30s. And so I wanted to explore the social reasons for them.
0: And these are, of course, all standard styles of footwear today. So it's it's really cool to think about and look back at when they originated. And dress listeners, you have until March 30th to get up to Canada, or if you are in Canada, <laughs> or wherever you are from, to see this exhibition. So check it out. And of course, let us know what you think. So in 2015, the museum presented the exhibition Standing Tall, The Curious History of Men in Heels. And it has since been digitized on Google Arts and Culture app. You can check it out for yourself. This is such a fascinating history, and we're going to learn all about it after this brief sponsor break. Welcome back. Elizabeth, you have spent nearly two decades studying the high heel and especially its socially constructed relationship to femininity. But high heels, as we will learn, were not always feminine. In fact, heels were part of the masculine domain for centuries. And it's quite possible that it was men, not women, who wore them first. So I'm hoping you can tell us about the first men in heels.
2: So when I was hired by the museum, I began working on the... uh, Footbinding exhibition, Every Step of Lotus. And, you know, those shoes are um, amazingly small. And people who are unfamiliar with the practice, just whenever I would lecture on the topic, couldn't stop asking me questions about them, couldn't help but see them. And I realized sort of halfway through my first year ha- here at the museum that a lot of people who were asking me these questions would teeter away in a pair of high heels. And I thought, How odd, we don't see the high heel. We might see somebody wearing a pair of high heels and say that they look attractive or that the shoes are beautiful, but nobody yet had asked the question, why the high heel? So I decided that that was gonna be my first research question. And I began to trace it back. There were sort of some silly ideas about how the high heel had been invented, but what I was able to do is actually trace it back. I've traced it as far back as 10th century Persia. And my theory is that the high heel was invented to be worn with the stirrup. And that uh, in Persia, at least, I know for a fact that they did use this in tandem, the heeled uh, riding shoe or boot and the stirrup so that they could, one, secure themselves in the saddle better. This is uh, military men. And that they they could also stand up in the stirrup and that they could shoot uh, shoot with more accuracy and use heavier weaponry. And so with this revelation that the heel was invented for this practical purpose and was in fact a very masculine form of footwear, then I had to ask the question, why did the heel only enter European dress around the turn of the 17th century? Europeans had known about heeled footwear. I've now been able to prove that some had entered into European collections. There were pictures of Persians in heeled footwear. Uh, I found it very interesting that Europeans had knew about this the heel but never used the heel before and in part this is curious because they were borrowing so many other things from western asian cultures or looking to the east for uh, fashion inspiration so then my next question had to become what was it around the turn of the 17th century that suddenly made european men want to wear heeled footwear and so i have I hope proven that it is related to the rise of Shah Abbas, one of the most important um, leaders in the history of Iran. And what he did was he very, very consciously tried to make connections with European leaders. The English in particular, English and Dutch wanted trading relations with uh, his country. And so it's at this moment where Shah Abbas is basically saying to European powers, let's rise up together against the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is sort of this boulder between East and West. uh, And let's, I can offer you the largest mounted military in the world. And they all happen to wear heeled footwear. And so what so, my thesis is is that it was this new interaction with Persia, the power of Shah Abbas, and the fact that he had this incredible mounted military who wore these heeled shoes that made the idea of wearing heels interesting to European men around the turn of the seventeenth century
0: right, and then they became pretty aligned with men during these periods as more and more men began to adopt them, and then the women who adopt them were actually perceived as transgressing. Gender barriers when they adopted them. So, can you talk about the so called mannish women of the 17th century who dared to adopt the heeled footwear of her male counterparts? <laughs>
2: Yes. You know, I mean, obviously we know that the heel at some point becomes hyperfeminized, but how women actually ended up in heels in the beginning was, again, this is my theory, uh, related to a kind of fashion trend that was happening around the turn of the 17th century when women were starting to add mannish elements to their attire. Tobacco pipes became fashionable. They started to wear hats that were very Manly, and so it is my thesis that what they did was they also added heels to their outfits in the effort to look more manly, to to masculinize their attire. And so it's not that it's it it was transgressive in that um, some of the women were sort of mocked for carrying weaponry when they didn't need it, and and you know being overly too manly. But really, it was a fashion trend that just sort of added a little bit of thrill uh, to their (laughs) garments as they sort of played with these signifiers of manliness. And so for the first century of the heels use in Western dress, both men, well, men, then women began to wear heeled footwear. But over the course of that hundred years, while both men and women wore heels, heels themselves began to be constructed differently for men and women, they began to look different, and then ultimately they began to be used to proclaim different aspects of gender.
0: And we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I we can't talk about 17th century footwear without talking about Louis XIV, whose penchant for extravagance and luxurious clothing is well-documented and known. Under his reign, heels were not only masculine, they were a literal representation of class and status. How so?
2: You know, to some degree, this can be overblown because I think that sort of simple histories of the high heel look to him and have even suggested that because he was short or because he was self-absorbed, he wore these extraordinary high heels. In fact what he was doing was wearing the fashions of the time. He was king, obviously uh, what he wore did help to promote fashion, but I think it's important to note that he wasn't inventing the idea of men wearing heels, he was simply partaking in what was already an established fashion tradition. Now having said that, there is the question of the red high heel. And so it's, he was very concerned about how those who were granted access to the court were dressed. And it still needs to be absolutely proven, but it seems that he granted the right to wear red high heels to only those French men who had been granted access to the court. Of course, we know that red high heels for men were not limited to France, Um, They had this political meaning within the country of France, but people who went on the grand tour, they would come home and they would sort of ape French design. And it creates some tension between England and France, actually. Because in England, as people came back with their continental um, affectations, uh, as emerging nationalisms were developing, the British began to really, really focus on um, sort of declaring men who dared to wear red heels as overly foppish. And so I think some of these ideas about Louis XIV and high heels come from that uh, English lens.
0: And there's actually, there's a fantastic image on the Google Arts and Culture uh, app about from the series of prints that was depicting various professions of, yeah as costumes, <laughs> I guess.
2: Yeah, I do love that piece. Yeah.
0: And there's this Wonderful. And I'm using image, yeah, of the Habi the du Cognonier or the shoemaker from 1693. And he's adorned with the various tools of his trade, including some very high platform high heels.
2: I know. It almost looks like it's from the 70s.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's always really fun to imagine, of course, what it would have been like to be there and to witness this display of of dress during these periods. I always love to think about that. But um so we talk a lot about gendered clothing and accessories on dressed garments and accessories that for whatever reason or another, have been deemed either masculine or feminine by society. The high heel is, of course, one of the most feminine sexualized accessories in history. And as previously mentioned, you've spent years researching this relationship between high heels and the feminine. And I'm hoping you can tell us when this designation really began.
2: So over the course of the 17th century, um, ideas about gender uh, related to enlightenment thinking, what will become enlightenment thinking, begin to be established. One of the first reasons is actually in body size. Um, So if you think about the end of the 17th century, that's when Cinderella comes out, 1695. And Cinderella, of course, her nobility is embodied in her small feet. And so the idea that the most beautiful women um, are small is is clearly written into this, this fairy tale, which was actually written for the court. And so the heel itself, the high heel itself at this point was being used, again, my argument, um, to hide the bulk of a woman's foot up under her skirt so that only a tiny little tip appeared underneath her skirt. So a lot of people will say things like high heels are worn by women and are hypersexualized because men just love the long legs that women have when they're wearing high heels. But the problem with that argument is that women's legs only became visible for the first time in the 1920s. High heels have been used for other reasons earlier. So the earliest use that becomes feminized is to create this very, very small foot. And even when you look at early um, heels or or late 17th century heels, you see that the heel is often placed very, very close uh, or very inset under the instep. And what that does is not only it helps with stability for early shoe architecture, but it also makes a very, very small footprint. Hmm. So the heels first use was this idea of making women appear smaller, making their feet appear smaller. Then as enlightenment thinking becomes even uh, more defined in the course of the 18th century, this difference between gender. Um, gets established, and it really is quite disruptive. Uh, Prior to this thinking, ideas about who should rule were based on birth. You become Louis XIV because your father was a king. You become a noble because your father was a noble. Uh, Enlightenment thinking disturbs this and says, you know what, maybe all men are educatable. And even if there's a shoemaker someplace, if he was given an education, he has natural rationality because he's male and he can participate in government. This, of course, this thinking leads to the end of the century and the revolutions that follow. Uh, But in order to create a distinction between male and female, Female now becomes irrational. It becomes uneducatable and therefore should not be a part of governance and citizenship, etc. And so fashion was very much instrumental in illustrating these new ideas about gender. While it may be very, very useful on the horse when you get off the horse, it is a rather irrational structure. And so as The combinations between heels themselves becoming increasingly feminized because of this use to make a woman's foot appear smaller, its distance from its equestrian use being established, and these new ideas that women are irrational, it shifts the heel into a form of um, dress that becomes marked specifically as feminine. And so it is Complicated, (laughs) but by the time you pop out at the end of the 18th century, um, the high heel is very much linked to ideas of hypersexualized femininity, and is also a link to ideas of the one place where women were perceived of as having any power at all, and that was in sexual manipulation of men. The one place where they had no rationality, and so uh, high heels, which linked to obviously women's feet and legs are the thing that remind people of what's under those skirts it is um, they they are the thing that, that you you see a little bit of the shoe and and you know you know where your mind can take you and so it gets connected to these ideas of sexually manipulative hyper femininity and Once you hit the 19th century, the heel's abandoned because of these associations for a full 50 years and is only reintroduced in the middle, reintroduced in the middle of the 19th century.
0: Right. I was, that was my next question because I know I always see those beautiful little flat, tiny little slippers that are in collections for the first half of the 19th century. Um, so that was right. my next question. So, and was there a reason that they came back into fashion in the mid-1850s? I mean, that's when we see the hoop crinoline coming back, of course, or the introduction of the cage crinoline skirt. And so
2: I feel like it is part of a larger reclamation of 18th century dress. Again, I never can just leave it at that i have to ask the question why would there even be a romanticization about 18th century women's dress at the turn of in the middle of the 19th century my feeling is that it has to do with increased agitation for women's rights and given how bad a reputation <laughs> heals and and women meddling in politics had at the end of the 18th century, I feel that the reintroduction of the heel, which at that time was named the Louis heel, that term, the Louis heel, was never used prior to the middle of the uh, 19th century, I think that that the reintroduction of the heel brings with it all of these other cautions around, wait, 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 do you really want women to have the right to vote? Do you really want women to participate in politics? Remember what happened last time? And so I think it is part of a larger sort of cultural program um, to raise alarms about what women were asking for. I think it is a; de- it was very purposely a destabilizing accessory.
0: That is really fascinating, and of course, trust listeners, we did a whole episode on Amelia Bloomers and the women's rights movement. So check that out if you have not. It's this period that Elizabeth's referencing. And really interesting to think of it in the context of the high heel. Uh, we did not make that connection. So as heels became increasingly aligned with femininity into the 19th and 20th centuries, did men abandon heels altogether, or was there still was it still there in some form?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a very simple narrative is that they sort of gave away the heel in the 1740s, and that was it. Um, But if you look at the early 19th century, this is when the revolutions have happened. The high heel for women is now highly suspect. It's something that those meddling aristocratic women wore. It's completely thrown out. Women have flat, flat, flats. Men have a similar problem, which is britches. Britches also had um, been linked to aristocratic dress, and so with the desire to distance themselves from anything that had that sort of um, touch of aristocratic fashion, men began to get rid of britches completely, and the type of pant that came in was the pantaloon. The pantaloon was knit, and the way it was supposed to be worn was very, very taut, And the only way to really do that is to have a strap that could be slipped under um, the the instep of the foot. And so early pantaloons were often um, worn that way, but the entire uh, pantaloon then, the lower leg, would be stuffed inside a hessian boot or a wellington. And some men, however, began to want to wear their pantaloons outside of their boots, so the boot would be tucked up under. The pantaloon leg. And so that strap then had to go under the sole of their shoes. But without a heel, two steps, the thing is like flicked off the back of your heel, and your pants are saggy, and you have a a sartorial nightmare. And so heels actually come back for men. Slight heels are not super high, but they're higher than what we had seen since the 1740s, in part so that 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 strap uh, under the instep could be held in place. So it happens for a little while. Some men are very happy that they have a chance to make themselves taller. Tallness uh, is one of those things, remember at the end of the 17th century, the idea that men were bigger, women were smaller, that continues into the 19th century. However, it's used, but it doesn't really stick. It only becomes important uh, in the 19th century in men's dress, out in the American West, when the cowboy begins to have boots specially made for him. And those tend to have higher heels because of course it's practical, they're horseback riding. And so um, these hyper masculine uh, symbols of American individualism are often high heeled clad as they are today, but because it's so hyper masculine, we don't even recognize that they're wearing high heels.
0: Right. Absolutely not. And of course, cowboys still wear this stacked heel cowboy boot today, of course. Um, okay. So we have now established that for centuries, high heels have been aligned with femininity. Uh, but when you talked a little bit about this, but I'm curious when they became really aligned with women's desirability and sex appeal, for instance. I know, you know, in the 18th, 19th centuries, we're not seeing women's legs, but the women's legs do come into play after the 1920s. Does that have something to do with it?
2: To some degree, I mean, I've argued that it was the invention of the camera in the middle of the 19th century that you begin to make a very clear association between women's footwear and hypersexuality. The early um, pornographic images tended to show women naked except for stockings and then the shoes that they had on. As per- and so those weren't necessarily high heels yet because the high heels just uh, reemerging into fashion, but as the rest of the 19th century progresses, this connection becomes more and more acute or clear. And by the end of the day, you also begin to see specially made fetish shoes. So high heels, and you know, even today in, in, in pornography, the naked female body is almost always um, ornamented with a pair of heels. Uh, Which is sort of nonsensical. You'd think that if you're getting undressed, your shoes are sort of the first thing to go. Um, But I think that high heels in these scenarios helps to pin the naked body in time and space that is that is contemporary whereas in western art history we have so many naked women that are allegorical venuses etc and so i think that the heel has been used throughout you know from the invention of the um, camera to today to make sure that people who are looking or consuming pornography understand that they're looking at contemporary women which is part of that titillation and so that the use of the heel within pornography from the middle of the 19th century to today has over and over and over again um, imbued it with or infused it with increasing eroticism. And so I think that that's one answer to your question. But if you also want to think about what happens right at the turn of World War II, I think you can actually see it illustrated very clearly how, um, how important the heel was to constructing desirable femininity.
0: Right. And you're talking, of course, about the invention of the stiletto. Wasn't that around this period that that uh, came into existence?
2: Exactly. And so um, if you think about what was fashionable for women to wear in the 1940s during the war, you know, sort of at the end of the 30s and and during the war period, in fashion, women tended to wear platforms and uh, wedge heels or flats, and all of them are reported over and over and over again as being absolutely hideous in men's eyes. Men's pornography and erotic, uh, erotic advertisement, things like that, invariably had images of women in high heels that aligned more with pornography. And so during the war, during World War II, it's interesting to see, and I think it's true, that women used platforms and wedges as a way of signaling that they're fashionable while not um, uh, proclaiming anything erotic about themselves. The men are away. I think it, you know there's a lot of reasons for this being an important um, form of fashion during the war period. But if you compare what women wore back home these either outrageous platforms on off hours or, or work shoes you know rosie the riveter you know the kind of work shoes that she would have had if you think about what women are wearing at back home versus what men fantasized women were wearing and you look at varga girls and other sort of pinups those invariably had women in high heels and so what i find interesting is what happens immediately in the post-war period when all of a sudden The feminine ideal that was being dreamed about by the men off at war had to, well, didn't have to, but it was uh, fashion helped reconcile women's fashion to that more erotic ideal. And that's when the stiletto is invented. It's my theory again, that um, the stiletto is invented to bring women into greater alignment with those wartime pinups.
0: And is it because it's a daintier shoe? It's a smaller shoe with tiny little heel?
2: you know, I think there's a lot of things going on. One is, you know, women had really proven themselves in the workplace that they could build fighter jets and munitions and um, there was sort of no job that they couldn't do. They obviously didn't do any of these jobs in high heels. And so I think that with fashion, sort of returning women to high heels was a way of signaling, we don't need you in factories anymore. We don't need you in these kinds of environments. And, you know, it was linked to ideas of making women look Desirable again. It was about um, sort of encouraging fecundity and a return to house and home. It, it was very much linked to making sure that things went back to, quote unquote, how they were supposed to be. And so the stiletto was instrumental, I think, in really helping to proclaim gender difference. Uh, whereas during the war period, the overalls and the work boots that you wore to go work in a munitions factory was not that far off from what men were wearing. And so I think fashion was, again, at the service of trying to create and establish uh, these gender differences.
0: Yeah. And the stiletto, of course, is defined by that really little uh, heel that it rests upon. And it was actually an evolution in technology or new technology that developed, right, that allowed uh, a woman's foot to sit on that small of a base for the first time.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because over the centuries, there have been these attempts to make very high uh, heels for women. And we have this beautiful pair in our collection from the uh, 1780s that is a wooden heel because the way that women's heels were made was by sculpting wood. But you can imagine that if you want to create a heel the size of a chopstick, that there's no way that a very thin wooden structure like that could actually support a woman's weight. And so being able to extrude very narrow um, steel rods was what was required before the stiletto could be invented. And so the stiletto allows for that very, very thin but very sturdy piece of steel to support uh, a woman's weight.
0: And the stiletto, of course, remains a staple of the fashionable woman to this day, as you've mentioned, its associations with femininity and sex appeal are in full effect. But while men took a bit of a break from high heels in the 20th century, they would come back with a vengeance and a riot of colors and even sparkly footwear. We'll hear all about that <laughs> after a quick sponsor break. Welcome back. So the high heel and a flair for ornamentation did return to men's fashion thanks to the peacock revolution of the 1960s. And this actually continues into the 1970s when men's high heels reached unprecedented heights. And despite the heels feminine association for centuries at this point, you argue, Elizabeth, that these men were not in fact transcending gender barriers, but instead they were using the shoe these, these high shoes as a means of actually promoting their masculinity. Can you tell us more about that? Yes.
2: So the Peacock Revolution, uh, as you know, was this idea that, hey, maybe men should actually be the more decorative of the genders, because if you look at the you know, wildlife, uh, look at the peacocks uh, specifically, you can see that the male is the more beautiful of the two, a lion is the more decorated uh, you know, compared to a lioness, and so men began to play with the idea that maybe that they should mix things up and sort of proclaim their masculinity by being more bold in their sartorial display. What I find most interesting about this, and this is why I say it was from promoting masculinity rather than being gender bending or even embracing of femininity, is that almost always who they looked to and what they sought to emulate or reclaim were items worn by other men. So when they grew their hair during the hippie movement, it was always being discussed in terms of Jesus hair, not Virgin Mary hair. Jesus hair. And when they um, went to wear some wild shirt, it was an African dashiki worn by an African man, or it was the Nehru jacket worn by a man. And, And for high heels, it was a reclamation of Baroque attire. Article after article talks about how men were starting to dress once again like Louis XIV nobody's saying, and in fact, structurally, the shoes show no borrowing from the female wardrobe. Men were not borrowing from their girlfriend's closets. There was no embrace of the stiletto. They were instead reclaiming a type of footwear worn by men generations earlier. And I think that it was most specifically those characters, we can call them, who were seen as hyper masculine such as rock stars and all you know imaged with all of these female groupies that were the ones who took this to its to its greatest extreme. But you did also see it in disco and you saw it in black exploitation films and all of these sort of models of hypermasculinity. And to be fair, a sort of broadening concept of who can be hypermasculine, I think was in part Uh, response to the women's movement and it was uh, an attempt to grapple with what did it mean to be a man in a changing world.
0: So we have this incredibly fun period of men adopting high heels in the '60s and '70s, and then that starts to really decline in the 1980s and '90s. And I'm wondering if there's any correlation to be made between that and the rise of this period where you see the celebrity shoe designers such as Manolo Blahnik, Christian Louboutin. Uh, that happens during the same period. I mean, this is here's these celebrities really helping to cultivate this mythos around luxury designer shoes and the women who wore them? Or was this more of a semiotic relationship?
2: You know, it's interesting because it's true. By the the early 80s, the high heel for men and, you know, this attempt to proclaim masculinity through the wearing of these clunky platform heels uh, does dissipate. But you do have a small little reclamation of cowboy boots, you know, urban cowboy, Ronald Reagan was famous for wearing heeled cowboy boots. Uh, So there is this attempt to sort of shift what the ideal man might look like. And in addition, you have the introduction of many, many, many more women into the white collar workplace. And so I think you have in the 80s, this men begin to return to more classic business where, Women are trying to be modest in how they uh, appear at work. It then ends up that they become sort of overly criticized for having desex themselves in their pursuit of workplace um, excellence. And so this is, you know, I argue this is when uh, Victoria's Secrets is introduced and in these kind of bordello-like um, catalogs that show women in skimpy lingerie, invariably in high heels. The high heel sort of is pr- promoted by fashion as an antidote to all of the de sexing that's happening by women uh, appearing in business. And so, once again, because of this very long tradition of linking high heels to pornography, you sort of pop out the other side of the 80s with the heel being very feminine, very hypersexualized. And then in the 1990s, it starts to be talked about in terms of being a signifier of female power. If traditionally women were ornaments to male power, once women have their own access to financial success and power, how do they ornament themselves while at the same time maintaining their desirability, which seems to be essential? And so designer shoes, high heels like Manolo Blahniks or Christian Louboutin come in as ways for women to proclaim that they have bought for themselves um, these accessories that not only promote their status, but also maintain or proclaim their desirability, and then it gets all confused that that this type of footwear is linked to actual female power. And this is where I really have a hard time um, understanding the use of the high heel in this way, because the high heel invariably is only available to women of a certain age. If the high heel is a signifier of power, then like like a three-piece suit potentially, you know, you can have uh, a wedding and you have a little ring bearer and he's in a little suit. And he looks adorable. And if you put a flower girl and a pair of Christian Louboutins, everyone would have a fit. And then <laughs> if you fast forward to uh, a funeral and a wife is getting ready, an 80 year old wife is getting ready to bury her now dead dear husband. And she's wearing a pair of Manolo blanocks that are teeteringly tall. Everyone has a fit. And so... It makes me ask the question, when are we allowed to have these accessories of power? And if we agree that these are accessories of power, does that mean that women only have a very small window in their lives in which to be powerful? And what is that power? And is it? And if it's a power of sexual attra- attraction, I would argue that you can never make somebody sexually attracted to you. <laughs> um, that power to be sexually attracted is in the eye of the beholder. And so it makes the whole concept of the power potentially being gained basically a mute point.
0: That's really interesting. I've, I mean, I've long associated or pondered the ideas and the links between high heels and this construction of femininity, but never in relation to, um, you know, age appropriate femininity. That's really, really interesting. And I'm really curious to get your opinion on the next topic because today men are once again adopting their age old friend, the high heel, and they're often Boldly pairing the accessory with skirts, April and I have talked about this multiple times over the past couple episodes, because people like Jonathan Van Ness of the show Queer Eye have really helped to bring the style to the fore. But if you go to the FIT campus in New York, for instance, it'll reveal this same display. And these are styles that are often adapted by gay men. And I would argue that unlike their 1970s and 80s counterparts, these men are making a conscious choice to transcend these gender barriers and say, you know, hey, your social codes do not define me or my wardrobe. I mean, I'm curious if you would agree and, and, and answer the question if it's ever possible for this high heel to be a non-gendered accessory.
2: You know, I do, I do think that we're living in a very interesting and hopeful time when these binaries, uh, when the binaries can be potentially a erased you know i've I've said many many times in interviews that i will believe that we are you know sort of reaching greater gender parity when the high heel if it is associated with power becomes a power that can be exploited by men and women equally and so i think that it's interesting to see increasing numbers of men being willing to wear things that have been so coded feminine Um, i do think that this does suggest that maybe these binaries are in fact breaking down and so a heel is simply a thing. It is like, this is what I do all the time, right? I work with with footwear, which is simply a thing. It is only given meaning by the culture that uses it. And cultural meaning can constantly change. And so I 100% that this inanimate object um, can be coded any way we culturally wish to code it.
0: Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. This was a wonderful conversation.
2: Thank you so much.
0: So what do you think, April? Can the high heel ever become a non-gendered garment like the blue jean or the t-shirt? I think so. And I've said this again and
1: again and again on the show, but I'm seeing increasing amounts of gentlemen here in New York City wearing high heels or high-heeled boots quite often.
0: Yeah. And it was such a pleasure to have Elizabeth on the show. And as I mentioned, you can experience the exhibition Standing Tall, The Curious History of Men in Heels on the Google Arts and Culture app, where you can also check out over 40 highlights from the museum's collection. Also, you can pick up a copy of any of
1: Elizabeth's numerous books, including the most recently published one, Shoes, The Meaning of Style, but there's also Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture. And we will definitely ask elizabeth back on the show to come talk about sneaker culture because it's fascinating and very trendy at the moment
0: yes very 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 cool subject and she will definitely be back and that does it for us this week dress listeners may you remember to stand tall with or without high heels next time you get dressed Remember to tune in this Thursday for our latest
1: edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address the questions from you, our listeners. And um, we love hearing for you. So if you would like to send us a question, you can email us at
0: dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. At dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore For additional readings for each week's episode, you can check out our show notes at
1: dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week.
0: Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.